I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. On March the 9th, The Economist will launch a new sister magazine. It's called 1843, the year that American Congress boldly voted to test the practicability of electromagnetic telegraphs and Britain was in the grip of arguments about the protectionist corn laws. The Economist has covered the big global debates ever since and our new magazine, named after the year we were founded of course, builds on that breadth to cover the world of ideas, culture and lifestyle. So in this special show we're going to talk to the freshly minted editor of 1843, Emma Duncan, and take a peek inside her first issue by speaking to some of the writers. We'll book into the only hotel in Antarctica – We'll examine the brutal beginnings of Marine Le Pen, leader of Le Front National in France and of Europe's nastier new politics. We'll also be looking at a study that says that the more affluent a society is, the more tearful it becomes. Emma Duncan is with me in the studio. Emma, what guided your choice of the kind of stories that 1843 should cover? What I thought about was The Economist's readers. So 1843 is primarily for them. And I asked myself what kind of people they are, what do they want to know about? And the conclusion I came to is that they are people who are curious about the world. They want to know what's going on in terms of culture, in terms of ideas. They want to know what to read, what to watch, what to listen to. They want us to tell them about developments in lots of areas of life that don't necessarily get covered in The Economist, our sister publication. So give me an example then of what this rich mix is in the first edition. So we've got a piece on our relationship to work. Why on earth do we work so much now? Why do we work so much more than our parents did? Is it because we're trapped in our jobs? Is it because we actually really love what we do? Or is it maybe, as the piece concludes, some slightly troubling combination of the two? So that's one of our big pieces. Um, We've got another great piece on Chinese students trying to get into the Ivy League universities. Lots of them do now. We're looking at this really difficult combination of fantastically hard work and also endemic cheating in China that contributes to this trend. If I look at that mix, I think, okay, that goes a bit deeper or broad into perhaps the cultural and the personal than what I would read in the main issue. But do you have something that might commonly be known as fun? You mentioned lifestyle, really. Does that fit with The Economist? We've got quite a funny piece uh, from one of our authors who, unlike most people in the world, managed to invest a lot of money in fine wine, one of the great investments in recent decades, and lose it all. How did he manage that? Well, with great regret is the answer. And so that takes us into a distinctive 
proposition about how you've done, say, culture or travel? Oh, well, we've got a great culture piece on. There's an astonishing global boom in private museums, rich people all over the world who've collected astonishing contemporary art and are building these great buildings and opening them to the public for free. I mean, that's an amazing story, I think. Travel, well, we've started with a serious bang um, in Antarctica. Basically, I've always fantasised about going to Antarctica. It's ridiculously expensive. I really wanted to know what it was going to be like, so we've got one of our writers doing that. Emma Duncan, thank you very much. And Sophie Roberts was the writer who got that trip in her parka to Antarctica. She's going to tell me about that in just a moment. Well, tourism and Antarctica might seem like an odd mix, but a hotel on the icy continent is offering a week-long trip for around $24,000. Sophie Roberts, travel editor of 1843, took up the offer. Sophie, you headed off to stay at what's being billed as the continent's first hotel, but not quite like most other hotels I imagine you stay in. No, something rather more akin perhaps to a mining camp. It's an extraordinary feat of logistics to have anything on the ice because we're in anterior Antarctica here, not the peninsula, which is where most tourists visit on cruise ships. We flew in deep into the heart of the continent and stayed at the HQ of a company called ALE, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, who facilitate travel through the interior for tourists like myself, for expeditioners who are skiing to the South Pole and for scientists who are undertaking work inside that continent. But it's by no means a hotel in the normal luxury sense of the word. And what did you see there that made you think it was worth the very long trip and indeed worth a substantial piece of writing? I questioned what it was worth because you are travelling a very, very long way into a white desert. Why do it? It's an extremely fragile piece of the world. It's something that one has to touch very, very lightly indeed. You have to be sure that everything that you take to the continent you remove, including your own urine and faeces, you know, nothing that is taken onto the ice is left there. You mentioned the White Desert, which is a wonderful analogy, but do you think that actually people see perhaps more than they would expect to see in a place that we just think of as expansive of white? Or is it more the fascination of the fact that there is so little there? Well, this was what really struck me. I landed on the ice and there was not an animal in sight. I didn't see an animal in the week I was there. I didn't hear a bird. I didn't see an insect. This is a desert where there are very, very few living creatures larger than small microscopic animals living underneath a rock. It is different, therefore, from the Antarctica that many people imagine, which is the penguin colonies, the albatross and the seals, which are along the peninsula of the coast. This was the interior. It is a desert, no different from the Sahara, but with even less life. But within that space, there is extraordinary topography. There are skies that are giant. There is a sun that never sets during the austral summer. There are 
the craziest, most fascinating group of people that gravitate there. And that, to me, was what made the place so uniquely compelling to sit at a dinner table with an explorer, with a scientist, with a meteorologist, with somebody whose job was solely and completely to remove the human feces was an amazing thing. It sounds like a very difficult environment for a traveller, partly because of the harshness of the, the landscape and the destination and also a little bit slippy. How risky is it? I was expecting to be in the biggest wilderness of my life and to feel that vulnerability that you feel when you're in wilderness as a human being. But in fact, in the environment I was in and in the, the, the hands of the people that were looking after me, it was the very opposite. I walked on groomed tracks that had been previously analysed by ground-penetrating radar and satellite imagery to check that I wasn't walking over crevasse. But there were other people who were present who were doing far more challenging expeditions like skiing to the South Pole and when I talked to them you know they talked about being taken right back to the core of what it is to be human which is how to survive which is how to stay warm how to shelter and how to eat. Sophie Roberts thank you very much. From life on the ice shelf we turn to the melting of our inner ice with the writer and broadcaster Matthew Sweet. He's been looking at our weeping habits for the first issue of 1843. There's an old idea that people in rich countries suppress their emotions. But Matthew, you've turned that on its head... And you start your piece with Darwin. Why? Well, Darwin is the man who really formulated this idea first. In the 1870s, he did this extraordinary crowdsourcing project. He got all his friends and contacts across the world to write to him about the emotional behaviour, not only of humans, but also of animals. So he was asking people in Brazil about whether monkeys cried, this kind of thing, but also asking his friends about the emotional temperaments of Australian Aborigines, of people in Borneo, this kind of thing. And he got all of this data together and came to the conclusion that the more civilised a society was, the less crying there was in it. The great dictum that emerged from this was Englishmen seldom cry except under the pressure of the acutest grief. Now, weirdly, although this sounds offensive and ludicrous and preposterous, Science didn't really come up with uh, much of a counter-argument to this until 2010, when a team of Dutch clinical psychologists did much the same kind of survey that Darwin did and came up with roughly the opposite results, that the more affluent a society was, the more tears were produced in it. And what about the relative strengths here of biology and culture in shaping our emotional lives and how much we fall into weeping? The more you study how people respond to different sets of of phenomena or circumstances in the world, the more various they seem to be. I mean, there are cultures that do appear to experience feelings that other cultures just don't have. Give me an example of that. The one that I find most attractive is an emotion called a wombuck which is felt by people in Papua New Guinea. And this is the feeling you have when people leave, um, guests leave your house after a happy visit. And it's a feeling of deflation that you have, of loss. And this can apparently be overcome if you put a bowl of water out in the house and this absorbs 
the feeling from you. And this goes back to a much older way of looking at the emotions. I mean, the idea we have that the emotions somehow arise from deep inside us, and in this kind of neuroscientific age, we assume that everything somehow is the product of something lighting up in your head somewhere. The emotions weren't thought of like that until relatively late, the 1820s, the 1830s. That was the moment actually when people started talking about the idea of emotion. Before that, you would have spoken about the passions and the feelings, and they would have been perhaps floating around in the atmosphere. Thank you, a dry-eyed Matthew Sweet. We're discussing the launch of 1843, a new magazine from The Economist. As well as culture and lifestyle, 1843 will feature long-form profiles of the people shaping the news. The first issue of the magazine, in print from March the 9th, features a story on one of Europe's most divisive political figures, Marine Le Pen, leader of France's far-right Front National Party. Last year, the Front National topped the polls in the first round of the country's local elections, causing many to see her as a serious candidate for the French presidency campaign in 2017. Miss Le Pen is also at the heart of the revival of nationalist politics sweeping parts of Europe. Joining me on the line from Paris is Sophie Pedder, the Economist's Paris bureau chief, who's profiled Marine Le Pen for us for 1843. So, Sophie, if we want to understand what drives a woman who's made the news in France, where should we begin? Well, I think one of the things that, that really struck me after following Marine Le Pen around for a number of weeks was the sense that she feels to be an outsider, an outsider to the establishment, a sort of almost she, she grew up as a pariah. One has to remember that her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who founded the National Front itself in, in 1972, he'd, he'd been a, an MP for many years, way back in the 1940s. And I think he had been a, a figure of, uh, he'd been an outcast in French society. And so she had grown up in this household where he was a, a figure of hate, uh, reviled by the French establishment. And she carried that to school with her. And she was mocked in classrooms. She was, uh, you know, the little friends of hers whose parents wouldn't let her come and stay or even, you know, visit them for tea. And these sometimes feel a little bit like trivial aspects, but one gets the sense that she really... Uh, resented the way she was treated carrying the name Le Pen. And there's been personal drama between Marine Le Pen and her father, Jean-Marie. Is this down to a different generation with a different iteration of right-wing politics or is it purely trouble in the family? No, I think it's obviously got a huge family dimension. This sort of dynastic battle um, makes it a, a real personal drama. But there is also a, a very different sort of political, strategic view here. And Jean-Marie Le Pen, I think, never really wanted power. You know, his whole, he was all about provocation, about causing trouble, about creating headlines and, and generally, you know, causing outrage. And some of that was extremely offensive. I mean, he once called the uh, Holocaust a, a mere detail of the Second World War. So one has to see it in in the terms of also a political rupture, Marine Le Pen does want power. And you talk in the piece about the politics of victimhood. Is that the thing that you think is really resonating with voters and might carry her campaign forward? Yes, I think that voters see her as a genuine champion of, of the outsider, partly because of her own personal history, but also because she speaks up for them and she speaks up for sort of France's discontents, those who feel that this, the established parties have, have abandoned them. I mean, it's, it's fairly similar to what's happening in the US, you know, Bernie Sanders or, or Donald Trump. 
you know, that sense of sort of the, the outsider, somebody who's not part of the established political scene, but speaking to those who feel that their voice isn't listened to. And that is very much what uh, Marine Le Pen has managed to capitalise on. Sophie Pedder, thank you. You've been listening to our special show on the launch of 1843, our new magazine. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Thank you.